1: Do you have a favourite 80s video and you wanna know how it was made? Hey, I'm Jack Hughes from Wayne Chung. Hey everybody, this is Ivan from Men Without Hats. Hello everybody, this is Francis Dunry from It Bikes. Hi everyone, this is Andy from Modern Romance. Hi everyone, this is Charlene. Hi, this is Dennis Seaton from Music Hi, I'm Nick Haywood. Hi, this is Kevin from Fiction Factory, and
0: you're listening to the 80s Rewind Show podcast. Enjoyed the show. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hands man. Welcome your host, the
1: Face for Radio Burgess. Hello, it's Days Rewind One Show podcast with me, Rob The Face Radio Burgess, and welcome to today's episode. I've got a great one for you. I spoke to the host of the music video Time Machine, a magazine all about 80s pop videos. I spoke to the wonderful Steve Pinalto all the way from the USA and explained to me how he got the magazine together and why he loves 80s music videos. It's a free magazine and there'll be a link in the description below so you can view a copy of this fantastic magazine. Thank you to everyone that subscribed so far and checked out the show. And if you can tell your friends about it and hit the like button, subscribe and leave comments, all that stuff that everyone tells you about, that would be amazing. Anyway, let's get on with it. The 80s
0: Rewind Show podcast, where the past meets the present.
1: So if we can go back to the start, um, what sort of music was you into as a kid and growing up? Were your parents into music? Were they very musical? Wow. Um, well, yeah, My uh, I grew up in
2: Biloxi, Mississippi, which is not that far away from New Orleans. So the, there was a large New Orleans influence in the radio, in live shows, et cetera. So my, uh, my parents... When they were in junior high and high school, saw live music every almost every weekend. They would they would see somebody in town. A lot of times it was Irma Thomas or a, another New Orleans artist. But my father saw Elvis Presley play in a local um, lo- a lodge hall wow. when he was nobody. When they, they, you know, and, and and they would all make fun of him because he he like you know shook around and acted <laughs> kind, of, kind of crazy. <laughs> But um, they were both into into music. They, When they were young, they would buy little 45 singles, and they saved all of them. And so when my brother and I were growing up, we were lucky enough to have both uh, rock AM radio. Uh, L- there was a local rock AM radio station called WTIX that would play the modern hits of the day along with classic New Orleans R&B. Uh, right. it was it was just it was odd and and they called themselves an oldie station but they would still play uh you know alice cooper and jake ellis band and things like that um in the in the 70s so i was a child of the 70s and i grew up on you know some of that music um but also uh i was lucky enough that my parents singles my brother and i would play which were little richard uh little richard uh, the beach boys uh just a lot a lot of that Uh, a lot of that era. And, um, you know, when you live that close to New Orleans, you want to go there a lot. So I would always beg my parents to take us to New Orleans and then we would go and we would, you know, hear the music in the streets of the French quarter. And um, it was great. So yeah, when I was being a child in the seventies, a very, very specific set of, of, uh, of songs and things that really bring me back instantly to the moment that I'm riding in the back of my parents, 74 Malibu, uh, when they're playing the radio and it's Alice Cooper, uh, or love stinks by the Jay Giles band or, uh, you know, dust in the wind by Kansas. Uh, you know, a a lot of these songs, they just bring you right back to that moment. Um, and yeah, it was, it was great. It was great. Um, growing up at that time. And then my high school, my junior high and high school and college years are 1980 to 1990. So I was just right. That I am the MTV generation. It was right. <laughs> so uh, the minute that started, I was glued to the TV, like most of the people, my age. And uh, later on, I got really interested in film production Um, Actually, it wasn't that long after uh, MTV started because on HBO, they showed this special called The Making of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it was the the first time I'd ever seen any sort of behind-the-scenes action of how a movie is made. And um, every time it would come on, I would run to my grandmother's house because she had HBO. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't. My grandmother did. And, uh, And watch it. And so I became fascinated with how movies are made, how things are done. So... Years later, uh, I moved to New York uh, in the 90s and I'm working at a broadcast ad agency, an advertising agency in the broadcast department. And we're doing commercials and we're looking at reels of different directors to try to direct these commercials. And one of them is Nigel Dick. And Nigel, besides being a commercial director, directed thousands, probably over a thousand music videos. And he... As He told me he's more of a utilitarian director. He would he said he probably never turned out a job ever unless he was he was busy. So he through the sheer volume directed some hit videos, which included Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses, um Sweet Child of Mine. He also directed Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, shout. And Head Over Heels. And then later on, he directed Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. (laughs) Right? The stories he was telling me were just fascinating. Like, how these things came together. And then he told me a little bit more about how the music video had evolved. And where it started. Because he actually worked for Stiff Records uh, when he was younger in the PR department. So, he saw how those videos were made by Dave Robinson at Stiff who had no money and they shot everything in one day and then edited it in one day. And that was it, you know? So he learned like the real bare bones of how you make something like that. And his stories were just incredible. And so, uh, I embarked on a bit of a, a a bit of a a journey, um, not knowing where it was going to go and what was going to happen with it. But uh, once I interviewed him and I talked to him, I started trying to find other people to talk to who were music video directors of that era and funny enough it's kind of a small world they all at the time let's say 81 to maybe 89 maybe 90 they all knew each other they were all you know because they were growing up the same way that the industry was growing up so i was lucky enough to talk to about going on a hundred of these guys um, from nigel to Russell Mulcahy, who did all the Duran Duran and and, uh, Elton John videos early on. Um, I talked to Bob Giraldi, who directed Michael Jackson's Beat It and Lionel Richie's Hello and Pat Benatar's uh, Love is a Battlefield. Um, I talked to Samuel Bayer, who in the 90s directed Smells Like Teen Spirit for Nirvana and No Rain by Blind Melon and Zombie by Cranberries. Um, and so, and everybody in between, I mean, I found guys who the, maybe they only did one or two, but it was a huge deal. Like David Rathod was a guy I found who only directed Huey Lewis's, I want a new drug and heart and soul, but there's were number one hits they were huge. So how they came about was interesting. And they, and, you know, he talked to me about, you know, the influences of, of things that maybe people didn't realize, like in the music video for, I want a new drug. Hugh Lewis is r- driving a specific type of, I think it's a Porsche spider. That is a direct reference to the Paul Newman movie, Harper. He's driving the exact same car, doing the exact same thing, same sunglasses. So, but who would ever know that? Because there's no DVD extras for reasons yeah. of that era. And so, you know, I, it, it took a long time to get in touch with everybody. I wanted to get in touch with, um, Funny enough, the uh, I just I did another interview just one month ago with somebody I had been trying to track down for a very long time, named Derek Burbidge. Mm-hmm. Derek Burbidge directed the "Polices Don't Stand So Close to Me" video, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Go Go's "Our Lips Are Sealed." Uh, you know, and he, he and his wife were a directing producing team and they, they, you know, did these different things. And I had been kind of chasing this guy for a while, but then, you know, he, he saw who else I had, I talked to and he finally, he was like, oh, sure, let's talk about it. And it was amazing. It was amazing. So, uh, over the years, it's been such a privilege to get in touch with all of these people. Um, Wayne Isham, who directed Bon Jovi's big videos, um, and he's actually one of the first guys to discover how to take the power ballad uh, from the metal era and turning it into a music video. That's interesting uh, mm-hmm. where you shoot the band doing a fast song, but you do it sl- and you s- slow down. You do have it in slow motion. And so when you're going through these, you know, these parts of it and they're like, yeah, you know that all that he came up with sort of thinking about how to do that. Um, the first one he did for that was for Dawkin <laughs> alone again, which is incredible. But then I went and looked at some others and the the stones did a clip for lady Jane that actually messes with the, that sort of idea as well. So if you ever look at, uh, if you're looking around for music videos, look up the the rolling stones, lady Jane, it's kind of a precursor for a lot of things. And then, uh, you know, there's, there's these guys, they came up with their own styles and, when you talk about the different videos that they did in that specific style, you think, "Oh, that's right. That looks like this one. That looks like that one because it was the same guy." And there's there's people like that. There's Peter Kagan and Paula Greif who were one of the first ones to use Super Eight film, and and uh, so so it had sort of a, a secret behind the scenes kind of look for it. You know that, that became such a huge thing. You know after a while, um, Mad Mahurin, all of his videos are muted colors and shadows and, and, you know, these amazing tapestries um, that you, I mean, you watch them and you, you're sort of like, you, I get why these are, are in these specific areas uh, of the palette. So like I said, I mean, I've been so privileged. And then of course the pandemic happened mm. and I was like, what am minute, I, I, I I'm going to do something with all these uh, things that I have. Um, so I created the, the magazine. Like I said, 84 pages of stuff. I mean, we go <laughs> behind the scenes of all kinds of stuff. I, I have an interview in there with Dave Robinson from stiff records who tells us about shooting our house for madness. And <laughs> the, the toughest part about shooting a madness video is keeping them from stealing everything on. This
1: <laughs> um, I love it. They're little bandits. <laughs> what I love about music videos back in the day as well is how experimental they were. Like when you've got someone like Godly and Cream on the track Crying where they're like fading the faces together and all that. I mean, that stuff would take weeks to do. Whereas it take 10 minutes. now. I just love that they took the time to experiment and make these really crazy, surreal videos.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, Godly and Cream, their run of videos was part of talent and part luck i have to say because no number one they were both musicians you know they were in 10cc and they they you know understood the mindset of a musician and so they would automatically connect with that with whatever band they were working with uh for every breath you take they you know figured out this incredible uh way of looking at at uh in black and white but their secret weapon on that was a guy named daniel pearl who's the cinematographer And Daniel Pearl is sort of, I would say, the most valuable player in the entire evolution of music video because the guy shot more music videos, more hit ones than you than anybody else, and it was by you know by miles. And he had shot a video for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers for a song called "A Woman in Love," and he did this very specific black and white uh soft treatment for the whole thing and so when they hired when godly and cream hired daniel to to shoot this they said uh, he decided you know why don't we do it this way and they were like that's a great idea and if you watch the two videos it's so apparent the things that uh that he brought over from that um but the the only thing i always found interesting about the police is uh you know stings always talking about how it's stewart's band you know But think about it too. If you think about a bunch of the hit music, the hit songs by the police, they all start with Stewart's uh, drum. They do, yeah. (laughs) Every breath you take is that crack at the beginning. Yeah. Um, You know, every little thing she does is magic. Has that at the beginning? You know, I so you know so many of them are are Stewart starting everybody off. Now I know you know if you have a band and you have a song. Sometimes, you know, that's what the drummer does. He counts off at the beginning. But, you know, S- Stuart's crack at the beginning of Every Breath You Take is absolutely like a starting gun almost. Yeah, it's, that's absolutely true. Yes. It's true. Finally, also, Gally Cream said that Sting said uh, on, the, on the set, just make sure you keep the camera on the money. <laughs> I love that point to himself. I love yeah, that. Well, apparently, I've spoke to at least three directors who work with Sting, and uh, I, all of them, let's say, that, uh, agree that Sting has a very healthy self image.
1: <laughs> I love that. Anyway, so uh, you got to the pandemic. Sorry if I interrupted you. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked at what I had and I. Thought, well, maybe I'll make a magazine out of this because I can see how this could be done. And so I planned out a, the first issue. I uh, wanted to go with the big guns from the very beginning. So I got John Landis's uh, interview in there uh, about things that he had not talked about quite as much for Thriller, but he also directed Black or White, which is uh, another huge hit video, but a very different Michael Jackson. But by, by the time you get to that, that's a whole. Um, Two albums later, actually, because there's bad and then there's dangerous. So uh he <laughs> has some great stories and also let on that uh as he understood it, there were other directors who came in before him that did not work out for, for black or white. And so right. finally they got him. They like we they knew that he could get Michael to the set because apparently that was part of the problem. Mm-hmm. But somewhere there is footage of apparently from what is what i've been told david lynch shooting michael jackson's black or white there is david fincher shooting michael jackson's black or white but you know it never saw the light of day because eventually they were like you know where am i gonna he's not he's not coming you know i i can go do a, a job now mm-hmm. you know so um because john landis did not really get a lot of money for thriller he worked out a deal that was out to be paid by the week <laughs> nice. and what they thought would take six weeks took three months i think um mm-hmm. and so he did okay but here's the other thing uh not a lot of people know there is a version of michael jackson's thriller in 3d that wow. mastered can be projected in a movie theater and has been at uh, the Venice Film Festival. And then uh, this was right before COVID. And so then after that, it just got shut down. And apparently there is some sort of problem or issue or something with the Michael Jackson estate as to how to go forward with this. But I would think that next year, being the 40th anniversary, Mm -hmm. I think, of Michael Jackson's thriller, the, the video, that would probably be the best time to launch a 3D version of it or, or at least, you know, do some sort of celebration having to do with it. Um, But he, he also, he had some great stories about working with BB King, about working with Paul McCartney. Um, And speaking of Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney, I interviewed Bob Giraldi for this as well. And he spoke a lot about working with Michael and working with Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney's biggest uh, issue with doing the say, say, say music video was what he told, uh, Bob Giraldi, which was, you know, don't make me dance with him. I mean, how am I going to do? I can't. It's not going to happen. You know what? Oh, please, you know, just don't make a fool out of me. And 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 so they figured out, you know, a, a cool storyline: the Mac and Jack Wonder Potion. Um, and they got a, you know, Paul McCartney got a big hit out of it, and uh, continued to work with Bob Giraldi um, after that. Uh, Bob was a commercial director prior to doing music videos he he did dr pepper and and you know different things like that and that it's interesting because the american directors tended to be commercial directors television commercials things like that because at, at early on uh in the early 80s there was no such thing as just a music video director because you couldn't make a living just doing that in America it was the commercial directors who were selling cars and beer and stuff like that. And so that's why many of your videos like ZZ top have cars and girls and, you know, stuff like that. Um, while in America, I mean, uh, while in, uh, while in the UK, you had, uh, people who were art school graduates and actually the UK had been creating music videos for a very long time. By the time MTV arrived, I mean, you guys had all these breakfast shows that you could put these music videos on and you had all these outlets across europe that a person that was that a, a record label could send their bands uh promo clip uh a pop promo or international clip or whatever you would you know want to call it uh and and you know be able to sell all these all these records and try to beat the bootleggers to but the you know what they wanted and so by the time MTV arrives, there's a reason that the first day of MTV, which only had, I, you know, they started repeating their videos about <laughs> way uh, into the day. Uh, a majority is British artists and almost all British directors of mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. You know, for uh, first video, as we know, video killed the radio star by Buggles directed by Russell Mulcahy, who did uh, Duran Duran videos later. The next one is you better run by pat benatar but it's directed by keith mcmillan known as keith in the uh, music video world and then uh the the unsung master of all things rod stewart heard <laughs> rod stewart has always been way ahead of everyone when it comes to the music business hmm. and that's why rod stewart on the first day of mtv august 1st 1981 has 11 music videos in rotation, more than any other artist by like miles. It's incredible. <laughs> I mean, they're showing sailing, which is like 1972, I think, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, it, incredible. And it also speaks to not knowing what was going to work or what was not going to work on MTV because yes. there was a dearth of content. So once. People figured out that MTV was going to, if you got your video on there, it would sell records, which took a while. It, it took a few years. MTV, people don't realize, was not even on the air in New York and L.A. until 1983. Right. So all, all those little markets was where it proved its worth. You know, you're in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they're selling Culture Club albums, but you're not getting Culture Club on the radio at that moment. And so where are these guys, where are these kids learning about this from? And they figured out it was MTV. So pretty soon the labels were, it was mandatory. You had to get a clip on MTV because that worked. That really worked. So they would find a director, somebody maybe who's already done some stuff with that artist or done something, you know, in the UK. Or if it's in the United States, you find a commercial director in LA who's, uh, you know, can do something on a budget because that's the other thing. Nobody had any money. <laughs> to make these things, I mean, it was just ridiculous. Uh, uh, Bruce Gowers most famously did Bohemian Rhapsody for less than 4,000 pounds, I think it was. It's crazy, um, yeah. And so, in the US, they would give you, let's say, okay, we have the song and we need a vi- music video and we want you to do something that looks cool so we can get it on MTV. We kind of don't care what you do. <laughs> It has to get on MTV. So you've got to do something that, you know, makes it stand out and doesn't embarrass the artist and is okay. So that's when the real creativity really started to arise. You had people doing narrative stories, you know, like Beat It, um, Sharp Dressed Man for uh, ZZ Top, you know, Love is a Battlefield. Those are all storyline things. And then on the other side of it, you have... You know, the fix saved by zero, which is like really art, you know, oriented stuff going on there. Um, and you have uh, what Duran Duran did, which is they decided, um, well, the Barrow brothers famously decided that this is going to be the jet set, uh, amazing, world traveling, bigger than life band that, you know, breaks MTV wide open. And, and it worked. It worked. Yeah gangbusters didn't didn't hurt that the guys were pretty good looking you know so <laughs> that that always helps a little bit um but then you had a, who knew which artists would break through and which would not and it had a lot to do with which videos caught the eye of these kids you know what why why did tom petty work out and mm. say james taylor did not yeah why why billy joel you know mm. Yeah. and not Gordon Lightfoot. You know, it's it's hard to know. But what was amazing about the 80s, and people always talk about this, is the in, unmistakable variety in the pop charts. Because the only thing they all had in common was MTV. So <laughs> was every genre doing everything all the time. You know, you had Eurythmics, uh and Billy Idol. And, uh, you know, like I said, ZZ Top but Whitney Houston and I, you know, it was, it was wild. Um, you would see on the charts, somebody like, uh, Janet Jackson and the stray cats or, you know, something, something crazy, you know? Yeah. Rockabilly. You know? Was so, so exciting about that time and, uh, and absolutely worth exploring when it comes to the evolution of the music video. Uh, it was, I think an unparalleled opportunity for filmmaking that's never really been uh uh, acknowledged as a creative force that kind of took over people talk about mtv and music videos you know shortening everybody's attention span well mtv didn't do that the guys who made the videos and cut them so fast and made you know did only those are the guys who created
0: those iconic images and you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You, you
2: people don't quite get the fact that there are all these music videos that were on MTV that everybody knew. And the rest of the pop media the rest of them were all taking their cues from MTV. Movies started to look like MTV. Yeah. <laughs> Television shows took their cues from M- MTV. Uh, you know, it was inescapable. And it saved the music industry, for one thing. You know? Yeah, right. Late, late 70s, things were on the downturn mm-hmm. in a big way. So I always found it, you know, exciting to try to find the stories that nobody know nobody knows about how these how these videos are made and, and what the the, you know, the problems were on the set and what sort of you know what was the artistic leaning in certain cases of what they were trying to establish what they were trying to do that was so so interesting um, in this issue of, of the magazine uh, the premier issue we talk about golden Earrings Twilight Zone video and I don't know if you remember, um golden earring, their Dutch band, their big hit uh prior to this was Radar Love.
1: Yeah, nice.
2: And then uh yeah, uh Twilight Zone uh has the great chorus when the bullet hits the bone and uh I mean it's it's a what they created with it was a little spy thriller. Uh and it has some really great moments. Um there's a weird dance break with dancing uh dominatrixes who are <laughs> Supposed to be with the ss i think i can't tell <laughs> um, but it's really really well done and kind of amazing and there's a uh there's a a moment in it where you see a playing card that's facing you i, I think it's i don't know what card it is but a bullet goes through it hmm. you know and when you think about it how impossible it would be to line up a card <laughs> Shoot it in the middle and have it go through so i was like how'd you do that and I like, oh well if you watch that shot it's not slowed down it's in real time for one thing and they heated up this bullet and they dragged it through the card <laughs> burning the card as it goes through but it looks like it's a bullet going through the card and yeah. you know you, you would never kind of go how'd they do that at the time? Everybody's like, Oh, that's pretty cool. But it also, it replicated a, uh, a a shot that they had on the cover of the album too. Uh, Uh, Yeah. So that was kind of the idea of doing that. And I, I mean, there's hundreds of stories like that in here. You know, if, if you take a look, Dave Robinson talks about shooting Tracy Allman's, they don't know video, which, uh, was her only hit over here. And I think, uh, Part of what was amazing about it is that Paul McCartney appears in it for like four seconds or something like that, and that was a favor that he did for Dave Robinson, um, which almost didn't get pulled off. It was like it had happened real, really fast. Um, Dave had to promise it would only take ten seconds to shoot it once Paul arrived, so everything was ready. He sat down, they shot it, cut. Six seconds is over. And uh, Dave said, and so the last thing I said to Paul was, you owe me four seconds. So <laughs> I'll be back to, you know, get that at a later date. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, what I love about the old videos as well, especially something like um, "Past the Duchy by Musical Youth, is it's a, a snapshot of old London as well. They oh, dot yeah. London and areas like, you know, if you went to London now, and looked at the same video it would not look the same. It'd be built up and there'd be skyscrapers. And I love that they time catch all certain areas as well. Like that. I think that's wonderful. Oh yeah. I mean, it, w-
2: one of the things that the directors told me is that one of the wonderful things about having no money to do anything is that you have to come up with creative solutions. And sometimes that's just shooting outside and it looks great. Um, there's a clip. I, I, not a lot of people know uh, "Working Girl" by the Members. Yeah. Do you remember that? I didn't. Yeah. They they shot outside and in, in in like a some sort of nice residence, but they shot outside and they're in, in a convertible driving around and stuff. Uh, and it looks it looks great. I think they're driving o- over uh, over the Thames. At, <clears throat> at, at a certain point. But another director I talked to, Lindsey uh said that that was his big secret weapon for uh, in a big country by big country was that they just went out to this, the greenest hills you've ever seen and got some, uh, you know, ATVs and rode around and they they shot this weird kind of storyline that doesn't make any sense. Um, but they shot that and they juxtaposed it with uh, performance and big country got a a hit out of it. Um, I know, I know Big Country was much, much larger, a much bigger band in the UK, but they really only had one hit over here and that was in a big country.
1: What was it about the magazine format that drew you to it, right? Why not like a podcast or a video series? Why, Why a magazine? Well, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, coming
2: up in the, in the 80s and reading a lot of Rolling Stone and, and also being a writer. I mean, I've, I've been writing for a really long time. Um, and I just, I like the format. Uh, there's something a little bit more traditional about it. And I also think that people um, who are interested in these, the, the first wave of people who would be interested in this are people who are my age. And uh, when I found a format that's more of a flip book format, that's, you know, it's like a magazine on your screen and you read it and you flip in, you know, uh, and you can zoom in to see it, it just appealed to me more. And and if there's one thing I've heard from other writers, uh, when it comes to doing projects, it's that you, you really have to really believe in, in the thing that you're working on. Mm. And I, I always, I always go back to that. It's like, what would I want to see? Well, I, I wouldn't want to read a, uh, you know, an endless blog about all this. It's just not kind of thing I want to do. Now I have a blog that, that, you know, I've written about, Uh, some of these interviews over the years because I've been very lucky to talk to a bunch of bands as well and hear their stories. But uh, I just, there's something about the tactile idea of the magazine too, you know, it's something I grew up on. It's definitely uh, not even cultural, but generational, I'd say. Um, Now, as far as video Uh, is concerned. I've shot a lot of video interviews with mostly bands, mostly uh, artists, and I'm working on uh, the format to put those out as well. Um, Over the next year, uh, I'm going to be doing a lot more video interviews uh, that I'm going to be putting up uh, in anticipation of trying to do uh, an official book that includes all of this stuff that, uh, I mean, I'll continue to do the magazine, uh, in, uh, sport, I would have to say sporadically, um, because it's, it's so, it's so hard to, to put it out. Um, so I think, uh, the video portion of it is going to be much more prominent. I was lucky enough to be able to interview so many artists that were really, really open about talking about that time and shooting those videos and, and, uh, and having you know really interesting stories about it i don't know if you remember a song called i want to be a cowboy by boys don't cry i don't Uh, is it good (laughs) (laughs) well it was a one hit words i want to be a cowboy and you can be my cowgirl that that was like (laughs) pretty much it well it was a it was a studio guy who came up with this little you know song and they released it to dance uh you know to these different dance DJs and it kind of caught on. So he ended up shooting a video on really on the cheap, but somehow he happened to know a Lemmy from motorhead. And so <laughs> Lemmy is in this video with these cowboys and it's like, why is he there? You don't really know <laughs> it, makes it more interesting. Um, and so, uh, I was actually able to talk to, uh, this gentleman in, in, uh, boys don't cry, uh, on video and, and get him to tell that story. Uh, and so I have, you know, all these really kind of interesting stories from different bands and different people that are video interviews that I'm gonna you know package together and release over the next year. Well, I'm
1: looking forward to that. To be honest, with you. I'll be watching it. <laughs> so <laughs> um, you focused on 76 to 94. Is that the golden age of video for you, or wh- why were those years specifically? I would say the golden age of music videos definitely 76 to 94. I think 1976
2: is significant because. Uh, bohemian rhapsody by queen uh is gonna is definitely created and then airs on the bbc and it's different Uh, at first from what i understand top of the pops uh did not want to air it no they you know have a real actually very selective policy if you ask me about who gets to do what on the show um but there is a whole musicians union uh situation as i understand it um but bohemian rhapsody's i mean it's a thing unto itself just the song it's basically three different kinds of songs all shoved together Mm. uh and so they decided they wanted to do something different and so they created this clip and so they set it into top of the pops and they're like no we're not going to show this but that was a mistake because when they released the song the song goes to number one and then if you are top of the pops week after week, (laughs) one song on anymore. So they eventually relented and they aired it. And for many of the music video directors I talked to uh, from the UK, they said they remember seeing that and then everybody kind of talking about it and then seeing it like again and again. And what it did was it, it opened the door to music videos being something more interesting that just performance um not long after that we had things like david bowie's ash to ashes um we had uh, i don't like mondays you know by the boomtown rats and you know some of these little smaller little pieces that were were different um it's a performance uh piece but i still think it's significant uh cars by gary newman yeah it's weird (laughs) Um, but it's definitely, I mean, it's got some, some camera trickery in it, but it's definitely not run of the mill. Mm. So I think that is the beginning of knowing that this could happen and it could be broadcast. It could come into your living room. Mm. The other end of it is 1994 because between in those times, it ne- I don't think there's ever been a time where television changed more. Over that period of time, especially when it came to music, because you had, you know, the first wave MTV, then you have, it becomes more and more of an industry of making music videos and everybody has to have a music video at a certain point. There's no, it's always a part of the equation. So by the time you get into the nineties, you're getting, you're just on the, on the crest of what's about to become the Seattle sound and alternative music. Um, but guns and roses are still hanging in there. Um, and making these enormously expensive videos. Um, and they did a trilogy for these songs from their Use Your Illusion album. They did one for Don't Cry, November Rain, and Estranged, mm. which in, in excess of a million dollars. And the last one they did was Estranged, uh, which is an enormously long song with three three different guitar solos in it. And at one point, uh, Axl Rose jumps off a battleship into some dolphins, and it, you're just like, okay. The significance of it is that the song did not even chart, right? So, you kind of at a point where people maybe are starting to look at each other going, wow. all right, well, uh, let's think about what we're doing because this might be getting out of hand." And but also at this point, you have directors. Who are emerging, who grew up on MTV. You yes. didn't have that at the beginning. So now you have a different set of people, and you have people like Stefan Sadenow and Michelle Gondry. And actually, David Fincher started to really like ramp things up and, and start doing more interesting things. So that's a good place to stop. Um, also, the director of Estranged and actually all those videos for Guns N' Roses from the Usual Illusion album was a guy named uh, Andy Morahan. He actually directed the uh, the bigger george michael videos for faith and father figure um, he had finished this trilogy and he said to the band you know he still didn't quite understand what the whole thing was about because you know it's some sort of strange odd storyline that's not exactly it's much more surreal than it is narrative because you, you wow. can't figure out really the storyline of it and so he said look you know you uh, i don't think that i ever really captured the essence of Guns N' Roses, a scrappy LA band that really took it over, mm. uh, and in their uh, their back in their appetite for destruction time. So he said, "Well, will you indulge me with with one more little project here?" And so he got them in a room and he did a lock off video, and they played a song called "Garden of Eden," which is less, I think, less than two minutes. Maybe it's maybe two minutes long, and it's hyperactive, punk, complete, you know, and there's the band going wild. <laughs> and that was it. They cut the video. I don't think they released it as a single or anything, but it didn't cost anything. Mm. But I always found it very interesting that we came all the way full circle to try to nail what a band is about. You know, yeah. try to be faithful to the idea of the song and the band and and what, you know, what, what they're about at that moment. And it turns out that going back to the basics of a music video was the place that this band and this director decided to go. I thought that was a good place to kind of put a little a little uh, exclamation point on.
1: What I, what I noticed as well, uh, at the time as well, because obviously I'm, I'm not been on a bit, but I remember we got to around 80, 80, uh, sorry, 98, 99, and you had all these wonderful, colorful, abstract videos from the 80s and early 90s, and they were just fun. And they got very chrome towards the 2000s like they're trying to future-proof their videos like everything's going to be metallic from the year 2000 onwards and they are sort of got this bleached look and they're very sort of metal and, and it, it just you know when you've got those old videos they're so colourful and fun and they invite you in and say like you're a stranger but come in anyway and they seem very sort of future-proofed I, I hated all that stuff
2: yeah I have to agree you know I, I, the early 80s is probably the best time to make something because there there were no rules yet there was no proven method for anything uh you know who knew what would work what wouldn't work um but the problem with art and commerce is that you know commerce always ends up ruling even though it might not be right and so yeah and you have all these marketing people and that's another thing a lot of the music video directors told me that they at a certain point they were like this is not fun anymore this is not really you know what i want to do because they would get a call from someone and said blah 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 once you to do their video and where it used to be you would be like meet with the band talk a little bit and then you would shoot it it's like no, no no we want we want four different treatments from you about what you want to do and you're going to be competing against six other directors and we'll let you know yeah. and it's like no sorry i you know i'm not going to do that i <laughs> i shot peter gabriel's shock
1: the monkey i don't have to do, audition for you you know <laughs> what was your um, favorite director from the period? If you have one that was the most favorite, if you had to pick one and oh, no, that's a hard question. Favorite director. Wow.
2: Well, it's oh, gosh, I, I, that would really be hard because it's sort of like, what is it that you would, you would pick as the video that makes you make them your, your favorite. Um, I, I, uh, gosh, I really got ahead to Russell Mulcahy being able to really put out just these amazing images and being faithful and, and really taking over. Um, another guy that I always thought was interesting, but, uh, I wouldn't say he was my favorite, but he did a bunch of my favorite videos. Um, is Jeff Stein. He directed Billy Idol's Rebel Yell, uh, The Cars, You Might Think, Holland Out of Touch, The Jacksons' Torture, which if you've ever watched is unreal. Uh, I highly recommend it because it's a total failure when it comes to whatever you're trying to do, but it looks like it's supposed to be thriller in space. Um, <laughs> and it's so terrible that Michael Jackson did not show up to shoot the music video with his brothers. So they flew in Madame Tussaud's uh, figurine of Michael mm. and put him in the video. <laughs> and if you look at it and you watch the end of the video, Michael's in the middle with, and and his arm is up in the air. It's obviously a mannequin because he's like, it's, it <laughs> looks terrible. and. Uh. Ah, and there was all these stories. I, I'm going to put that in another issue of the magazine coming up. It was, uh, it was known all over town that this video was being shot for an obscene amount of money that they were over. You know, the, the crew was up for 36 hours at a time. It was going really badly. Um, the Jacksons are Jehovah's witnesses. So there were orders for nobody to do drugs on the set. Everybody was doing drugs on the set. Um, <laughs> Uh, so just a real mess. But Jeff Stein, he's it's oh he also directed "Don't Come Around Here No More" for Tom Petty. Um, so he he's one of my favorites. I, Bob Girali also he's got a great, just such such great uh stories, and you know, I they all just seem like they had so much fun doing this,
1: and I I just I envy that I guess. If you could take a music video, for argument's sake, like every ref you take, and then give it to another director to have done their version of it, which sort of director would you have put any track you want to pick? Um, but who would you have picked to do a different video for an, a different artist? That's a good question. Um,
2: I'll put you on the spot. Sorry, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I would like to see- See what David Fincher would have done with Synchronicity Two, mm. you know, because that's, that's pretty ambitious. It's it's a uh, you know it's supposed to be that sort of road warrior look, you know. Um, so I think that would have been that would have been interesting. Um, I think, gosh, who else would it be? You um, know that I, that's. Probably the only one that I would have, I would have put together. Um, I would have liked to see Nicholas Cage in more music videos. I don't, I don't think I've seen him in one. So it's the only film, it's the only film format he's not in. You know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love Nicholas Cage.
2: Um,
0: <laughs>
1: <That's>
2: <laughs> I love him too. He did a, uh, he did this film. Um, that my younger brother worked on in new Orleans, uh, bad Lieutenant port of call. And it was directed by Werner Herzog. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Is right. And I heard the, the interview with Werner about it, um, where they, he talked about that. There's an alligator in the road that, you know, it's supposed to sort of be kind of not quite dead, but he didn't realize that when you, when you buy an alligator, it's frozen. <laughs> So you thaw out the alligator, and then put it out there. And then he said, "And then it's just the cheapest thing." I had to tie a little fishing line to his leg and go, yee, yee. and make him move. And you're like, "What are you doing?" And t- which is, which is great. Which is really great. Um, it, it reminds me of, of. I just want to tell this last story. Um, Don Letts, the great Rastafarian reggae rock champion of Bay audio dynamite and everything else that he's done um as a filmmaker he directed the clashes rock the casbah which is shot in texas and involves uh a guy dressed up as an acidic uh rabbi a guy dressed up like an arab riding around in a convertible um and there's an armadillo in 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 the clip as you recall well, Don told me that they were shooting on a, on a stretch of road and the armadillo was balled up mm. and he learned that to get an armadillo to unball itself and walk around, you have to blow on it. So anybody who is watching this music video being shot or maybe drove by or something saw a Hasidic rabbi and an Arab sitting in a cat in a Cadillac uh convertible next to a rastafarian blowing on an armadillo in the middle of the road
1: <laughs> i love that
2: which you know if you're if you're on acid when that happens
1: <laughs> it's, it's dangerous if you're not you might think you were that's all <laughs> um i've read the magazine i love the magazine where can Honestly, it's great. Like for someone that's me that just loves music, it's informative. It's sort of nerd heaven. It's full of facts as well. It's it's fantastic. If people want to get a copy, where's the best place to look for it?
2: Well, you can go online to musicvideotimemachine.com. Uh, it's free. Uh, it's a link. It, you can read it as a flip book. Um, I highly recommend reading it uh, on a laptop rather than a phone because it's a little bit easier to maneuver through it. And it's worth sitting, sitting with and reading um you can also uh follow me on instagram at music video time machine and on twitter it's mv time machine uh so and that's where you can learn about all the latest things that we're doing Uh, i also host a monthly dance party here in brooklyn new york um where we play music videos from every genre that you can dance to and some that you can't but you end up dancing to anyway so uh it's a lot of fun so uh seek us
1: out we got a lot going on uh, fantastic, and I'll put some links in the description as well so people can find it dead easy. Thank you. Um, thanks, Steve. It's been wonderful talking to you today, mate. It's been wonderful. Oh, well, thank you,
2: Rob. I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, keep, uh, keep the fires burning with the uh, 80s
0: Rewind Show. The show is produced, edited, and presented by Robbie. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review.